This is Duke University. As we thought about who would be the perfect speaker for today, um, one person came to mind as just an outstanding example of social entrepreneurship and business skills in action. And Martin doesn't like long introductions, but since we're in a room full of MBAs who aspire to use your business skills to make a difference, let me just tell you a little bit of backstory before we bring up Martin. Um, a couple of years ago, Case uh, paid for, uh, commissioned uh, two authors to write a book called Forces for Good. And this book actually made the, one of the top 10 business books of the year in The Economist magazine for 2007. And the, the subtitle is The Six Practices of High-Impact Nonprofits. And, and what the authors did, actually with, with input from the Case faculty, is take a look at those organizations that have started in the last 30 years, 30 to 35 years, that have had significant impact. That really sets them above the crowd in terms of high-performing nonprofit organizations. Twelve organizations were selected, and we're thrilled that one of those 12 that has national recognition for its impact is right here, homegrown self-help. Now, Martin is just an amazing social entrepreneur and true servant leader. He was a pioneer in the community development finance long before that really became a buzzword and got the attention of, of policymakers. I think this is cool. In 1980, with $77, Martin and his wife, Bonnie Wright, earned, they earned the $77 from a bake sale. They founded the Center for Community Self-Help in Durham to provide legal advice to employees who want to take over troubled textile mills and furniture factories. Now that's 30 years ago. In the last 30 years, you'd just be amazed to hear how much self-help has done to become one of the leading community development finance institutions in the country. And I just heard from Martin, now going to be the largest uh, CDFI in, in California in particular. Since then, Martin and his team have become a major force in the financial services of the U.S., working with Fannie Mae, Bank of America, Citigroup, and others. Through self-help, which has grown to be one of the largest CDFIs, he and more than 200 employees have made home and business ownership available to minorities, women, rural residents, and low-wealth families and communities across the country. Um, to total, cumulative, they've provided more than $5.7 billion for 65,000 homeowners, small businesses, and, owner, and, uh, and, and nonprofits. Another interesting thing, one of the things we talk about when we talk about making a difference and looking at your ecosystem to make change, policy work is really important, critical in actually bringing about change. So in 1998, Self-Help formed an alliance with leaders from Fannie Mae, Bank of America, and other major banks to use money from a $50 million Ford Foundation grant in an innovative financing arrangement to create a secondary market for mortgages to low and moderate income borrowers. And to date, we estimate that that's had more than $4.6 billion and affordable mortgage, uh, mortgages to more than 51,000 families. In policy work, they formed uh, a coalition to create, uh, to, to fight against predatory lending practices. This resulted in, in a number of policies across the state, and more than 25 other states have followed the, the lead here. Um, this year, for example, the Center for Responsible Lending recently launched the Institute for Foreclosure Legal Assistance to support groups giving legal representation to families facing foreclosure and financial ruin because of these subprime mortgages. The Institute launched a $15 million grant from um, Paulson and Company to support direct legal assistance to these families. Martin has testified in front of Congress. He has received death threats for his active work against the predatory lending. Um, and this is our first time to welcome Martin back today in Durham since 2005. So it's kind of a, a five-year anniversary. And as I think back those five years, just months before we welcomed him, he had been named Tar Heel of the Year, which means North Carolinian of the year, for those of you who are new to the state, uh, by the News and Observer. And also, a Wall Street Journal led off with the uh, title, When Martin Eek Speaks, Citigroup Listens. So I hope you all join me in listening to local social entrepreneur, 
Mark Meeks. Good morning. If I had known that Matt was going to start off with an overly generous introduction that sounded more like a funeral eulogy, I would have done the, I would have done the decent thing and died before I got here. <laughs> For those of you who've never been in, can you hear me? Who've never been in the South, I'm going to introduce you to a new way of talking. I never thought I even had a southern accent until I went to law school and drove into New York City in my old 1965 Buick, parked it, double parked on the sidewalk, went inside and ordered a roast beef sandwich. And the guy at the counter, he said, hold it there, sonny, don't say another word, don't say another word. And he went in the back and got every employee <laughs> from the delicatessen and brought them all out there, almost like a choir standing around. He said, now please say it again. <laughs> And so I ordered again, and he says, oh my God, you must be from the deep, deep south. Well, if you're in North Carolina, you think the deep south is Mississippi. And I think, well, I don't know. He says, are you from Delaware? <laughs> so from New York, it all sort of depends on your perspective. I recently gave a speech in Maine to a group of business folks who were trying to pass a predatory lending law to stop abusive mortgages in the state of Maine. After about 15 minutes, I looked on the front row and I could see that there were people looking confused. And so I looked at them and I said, am I not being clear? Should I speak slower? And they said, oh, please, God, don't speak any slower. <laughs> so I tell people I'm proud of being a Southerner. Uh, I was born here, was raised here, was educated here, and raised my children here. And I tell people when I die, I want to make sure I have a good Southern Baptist preacher speak at my funeral because that's the only way I know for cer certain that I'll get an extra two hours that I didn't deserve. <laughs> if I were titling my message today, it would be the power of just showing up and being there when someone needs you. And so I would say and call that function the power of servant leadership, and of just being there when you're needed. Now, I call it servant leadership instead of service leadership because the word servant brings this image of humility. And I think about a statement that I recently read that said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking about yourself less. And for me, being there when needed is not a master plan for life, but just a recognition that your greatest contribution in life will happen on a day that you didn't predict in the ordinary course of events in a way that you never had planned. Now, two more stories before I get all serious on you, and I am sort of a southern preacher, so you'll sort of cry by the end of this speech. My two, my two stories, the first one is to show the difference in perspective depending on what your assets and wealth are. And this is a story about a Texas rancher. Anybody here from Texas? All right, proud Texans. Anybody here from North Carolina? Okay, now that's unfair. <laughs> We're outnumbered. So we had a meeting, and this Texas rancher came, and he started bragging about the size of his ranch to the North Carolina tenant farmer who had a very small ranch, small farm. And the Texas rancher started off, he says, you can stand in the middle of my property 
and look in any direction and not see anybody else's property. He says, just yesterday I started on one side of my property at 6 in the morning and I drove for 8 hours and never reached the other side of my property. And the tenant farmer from North Carolina looked at him with great sympathy and he says, yeah, I know just how you feel. I used to have a truck just like that. One more story. There was this young man who showed up for jury duty as instructed by the written notice that he had received. And he was really agitated and fidgeting, and he just couldn't sit still very long. And he jumped up and he addressed the judge. He says, Your Honor, you have to excuse me. I just can't stay here any longer. My wife just went to the hospital this morning and is conceiving a baby. Now the judge looked at the young man with some empathy and he says, I think what you mean to say is that your wife is delivering a baby. And the young juror with great vehemence said, no, I mean she is conceiving a baby. And the judge just shook his head. He says, I've never done this before. I'll probably never do it after, but I'm going to excuse you today. Go on, young man, because either way, you need to be there. <laughs> So will you remember that being there is important? That's the message of this. Okay, I want to give you a quick overview of some of the people that I know in Durham, a quick snapshot of self-help and a little bit of the story of self-help, and then a couple of the key stories and principles that I think have been important to self-help over the last 25 to 30 years. The first is that you don't know this if you haven't lived here, but that Durham is actually a very special place in the world of social entrepreneurship. And I thought I would give you just a couple of the historical views uh, that you probably may or may not hear if you are uh, in the MBA program. First, in 1898, North Carolina basically sanctioned official segregation between black and white and passed what are called Jim Crow laws to basically segregate all African Americans away from the dominant white community. In that same year, 1898, the North Carolina Mutual Insurance Company was started in downtown Durham, and it grew to be, over the next 80 years, for 80 years, the largest black-owned financial institution in the world. And out of that grew the Mechanics and Farmers Bank, and for decades, Durham was recognized as the Black Wall Street the most prosperous African-American business community in the world, despite having started at the very time that official segregation was codified. The Institute for Minority Economic Development, which is one of the leading organizations in the country for assistance to small businesses that are owned by women and, and entrepreneurs of color, is located in the very building that originally housed the the uh, uh, the mutual insurance company. In 1909, North Carolina Central University was started as a liberal arts college for African-American students. And it has grown to be the premier public university that historically dealt with African-American students uh, throughout the country. So you have these two really powerful public institutions who have been with Duke and NC Central that have been really a seedbed, sometimes for conflict, but often conflict ends up in activity that is good. 
Self-help, we'll talk about a little bit more, has become the largest nonprofit community development financial institution in the United States. We have about $2 billion in total assets, which I've got to tell you is just the most shocking fact in life. This is the only audience that I get to come to overdressed. You know, I go to work in tennis shoes and often forget my belt, and I literally can't get to work with two socks that match. So there's something about, I would say it's the water and the air in Durham that uh, nurtures that because I can't take much credit for it. In 2000, the Latino Community Credit Union started, which is one of the most dramatic community development financial institutions started in the last 20 years. The Latino Community Credit Union, which is, was started in a building that Self-Help bought for it, is, was two blocks down the road from Self-Help and grew in the space of 10 years to have 10 branches, 50,000 members, 85% of whom had never had a bank account ever in their life, and to $100 million in assets. It's really, as a reporter asked me, they said, well, Martin, why did it succeed so well? And I told him, I said, well, it, it grew three times faster than self-help did in its first 10 years. And they said, well, how do you account for that? And I said, well, they had competent management. Sustainable Jobs Fund, SJF, is one of the premier leading environmental sustainability investment funds based here in Durham. And then at some point, if not today, you will go to the American Tobacco Campus, which is the largest, with $70 million, the largest historic renovation project in the southeastern United States ever. And Self-Help had the honor of providing a $40 million permanent loan and construction loan for that facility which to give you some sense was for us at that point the largest loan we had ever made before that $40 million loan was $6 million. So there are times where I would encourage you to go eat at American Tobacco Campus and make sure that the restaurants there all succeed. You will be doing me a great favor. <laughs> okay, a quick, a quick snapshot of self-help. Self-help credit union you heard started with $77. It has now grown to $500 million in assets, has 9, 10 branches in North Carolina, has 37,000 members, and has become a platform for us to make small business loans to over 10,000 small businesses over the years and to over 60,000 homeowners uh, over those years. We have the Self-Help Ventures Fund, which sounds like a venture capital fund, but it's not. It's really a revolving loan fund that makes loans that we couldn't do prudently through a regulated financial institution. It has about a billion dollars in assets, uh, was also set up in 1984. Self-Help Federal Credit Union is a brand new credit union that we started up two years ago in order to build a business base in California. And I tell people, we either had the greatest business strategy ever, or we're about to collapse and fall on our face. In those two years, we have merged six credit unions and have grown to $400 million in assets, uh, about 50,000 members, and 19 branches across the state of California. So when I started, I said, we're going to do in California what we did in, in North Carolina, but who here is from California? California is a really big state, <laughs> and it's very different from top to bottom. So we now have branches from Bakersfield to Vallejo and 
Modesto and all throughout the state. And our goal is to build a $1 to $2 billion institution there that will network and really serve the un underbanked and unbanked in California. And then finally, Matt mentioned the Center for Responsible Lending, which I'll talk about a little bit more later is an affiliated research and policy organization that started because we got really angry at the financial services sector. And in 2002, started this organization that has hired 50 lawyers, PhDs, and MBAs to basically terrorize the financial services industry for any of their abusive practices nationwide. At least 12 of the companies that we have engaged directly no longer even exist. And so one of the messages I will say later is that having a moral core to your business activity is important not just because it will enable you to change the world, but it's important to the very success of the business itself. My mother used to have this saying that she would quote to her four sons. If you have the vision to see a problem, you have the duty to help solve it. You have the vision to see a problem. You have the duty to help solve it. I am guessing that in this room, we have people that are overly skilled in seeing problems. And so you have a higher duty to help solve those problems than anyone else in the world. We started with a $77 bake sale to raise capital to, to lend to minority small businesses. And now with $2 billion in assets, we've grown a lot. But we really haven't changed all that much. The key fact for my childhood is that my father, who was this Jesse Helms Republican right-wing guy, wanted his four sons to learn how to work like he did growing up on a farm. So he moved us to a community that was semi-rural on the south side of Greensboro. And I don't think he really knew that the community was all black. My mother, who is this really saintly woman but quiet around my father, said, Martin, I only have one political goal in life. I have one rule, and that is however your father votes, I vote the opposite. <laughs> so as a family, we will at least be carbon neutral uh, throughout the country. And so I tell people, if I sound confused, sort of a half social capitalist, I love to make money but I don't care about having money. What do you do if you're genetically programmed to make money, but you don't care about money? And so self-help I describe often as a group of misfits, people whose ideals would put them in the public sector, but whose skill set puts them in the private sector. And so we try to marry those two together. Where else do you go? And we've made hundreds of millions of dollars of earnings through doing the work we've done, and we've begged for money, and we've been successful with that. But I did make this bet when we started Self-Help Credit Union in 1984 that has proven to make me look like a genius even though I'm not. I made a bet that single mothers who didn't have many advantages in life would be great borrowers either for small businesses or for first-time home ownership. And in the first 11 years, we made 1100, 10 years, we made 1100 home loans the families that my banker friend said had no chance of succeeding. I received ferocious criticism from these uh, lenders and regulators who were convinced that we would lose 
incredible sums of money. But for me, these were the mothers that I grew up with, that after basketball games, I ate at their table when I was growing up. And I knew that the risk was not very great, that if people who are poor have a chance to own something and are able to get the credit to own a business or start a, uh, to, to own a home, they'll do anything to pay it back. I recently, uh, this was uh, s several years ago, had the chance to meet with Bill Clinton, who was doing this White House Rose Garden ceremony. And I told him this story about how our borrowers would do anything to keep their houses and their small businesses. And Bill Clinton was proud of saying how many jobs he had created during his, uh, during his time. A lot of them were part-time jobs. And so I told him, I said, well, we know all about all those jobs you created because the people we loaned to had three or four of them each. He didn't like that so much, but I think that was <laughs> the truth. During that first few years, we learned a statistic that really, I think, is the greatest failure of a really great country. And that is we found that families of color in the United States had one-tenth the wealth that white families had. And that translates into everything else. If you're trying to start a small business and you need collateral, you have to have something that you can offer. And then we found that 65% of family wealth for all families, white and families of color, was held in the equity that people had in their homes. And so we knew that we had to become active in home ownership as a strategy, not because we cared about shelter per se, but because that was the leveraged asset that enabled people to build wealth. I'll come back to how our vision got corrupted 10 years later, 20 years later. The families that I made loans to early on came back to us 10 years later saying, I need to borrow against my home in order to send my kids to college or in order to start a small business. And for us, that was the lesson that short-term income gives a family short-term choices, but owning a nest egg or some measure of family wealth gives that family the option to make long-term choices. Okay, my three preaching points. Here's the first one as a good Southern preacher. I want to talk about the concept of trusteeship and assert to you that I believe that we are trustees for everything we possess and everything we touch in this life. And I want to say straight out that I believe that the prosperity theology, ideology in this country, that greed and self-interest, if practiced in a market, will ultimately lead to good outcomes for all, is both morally wrong and pragmatically wrong. I can't prove it to you today, but I will if you give me a chance to preach to you on some other occasion. I will do my best. So trusteeship, have you ever asked yourself, if I were to die today, who would take care of my children? Or if you don't have children, who would take care of my elderly parents? And if I were to give you all of the resources I have, would you be willing to be my trustee? Would you hold those resources to take care of my children or my parents? And would you remember your trustee role even after I am gone, using the, the resources I have given you, not for your own gain, but to take care of my children or my parents? This idea of trusteeship is, I think, the fundamental concept of both economic justice and environmental stewardship. 
Our time, our talents, our possessions, no matter how large or how small, are merely short-lived gifts. And I'm not really disturbed that our gifts are distributed unevenly. If one person had to give up one brain cell in order to create an Einstein that could see the world differently, that could make discoveries for the benefit of the whole world, I would vote in favor of that inequality. Einstein would be delivering his genius as a trustee for humankind. In my view, the real injustice is a cultural value that says a trustee of resources, whether great or small, can use those resources to squander or for their own benefit exclusively. So I think this idea of trusteeship links the two movements together. Environmentalists recognize that key individuals in a generation will be trustees for really the earth itself and what follows. And the undistributed resources of clean air and clean water require a stewardship beyond all others. Those entrusted with great personal resources, whether beauty or money, creativity or power over the air and water, must be trustees for those gifts. In my view, this is what enables us, no matter what your childhood status was, at this point, being at Duke's MBA program, you are a person of privilege. No matter what you climbed through to get here, you are now a person of privilege. Does that mean you have a duty to give away everything you have? I would posit that that's not the right outcome, but that for you to use what you learn and the connections that you have as a privilege, as a trustee recognizing that you use it not just for yourself, but for communities and people broader than just yourself. Trusteeship is, is more than simply using our money for the benefit of others. We focus so much on what we need to do that we often forget who we are and who we want to be. What kind of steward we are with our own talents, with our own gifts of spirit, will, I think, determine and shape the future of the entire world, not just the little world that each of us lives in. Let me share a personal experience from when I was growing up of what I call an ordinary hero who made a difference for me and he probably never even remembers that he touched me. This young man's name was Adam. He lived next door to me in a predominantly black neighborhood and was the very beginning of the school year. It happened that Greensboro was the first city in the South to announce that it would comply with Brown versus Board of Education and desegregate its schools and integrate black and white but it was almost the last city in the, in the South to actually do so. So when this neighbor of mine was in the 11th grade, he was the first and only black student to attend the high school that I went to 15 years after Brown versus Board of Education had been decided. He would sit in the front seat of the bus every morning. And as kids will do, they made fun of him and they would go, this kid would wear a suit like I am today and they would thump him on the back of the head and tease him mercilessly every single day of the school year. I'm embarrassed to say that it took me about three months. I was a very small ninth grader. He was an 11th grader. Before I walked up to the front of the bus and I turned around and I said to the rest of the people on the bus, I will not let you torment this student anymore. And I'm thinking, okay, I finally made a stand. You know, I'm tough. And this 12th grader walked up from the back of the bus, sort of 
amb- you know, ambling along. I didn't pay much attention. And he punched me and smacked me right in my nose, knocked me flat on my butt. My nose was bleeding. And this student, Adam, pulled me up into the seat beside him. I'm embarrassed to say that the seat was always empty during that first year. And he pulled me into the seat and he says, Martin, you cannot respond to hate with anger. People have to learn who they are by the example others show them. This is an 11th grade, 11th grade kid. At that time, I'd never heard of Gandhi or Martin Luther King, and what I did think I knew it wasn't good. But this young high school kid was a hero. And what I learned from him was the power of a vision and knowing who you are. And much of my own vision is really a debt to the kids that I grew up with many, many years ago, many of whom don't even remember who I am. But they made a difference as a person, not through martyrdom, not through great works or deeds, but who they were as a person. My second preaching point. It is our duty and our privilege to fight for social change. I don't do the work I do because I am a good person. If any person is enslaved, literally no person is free. And if I will argue to you later that struggle is really the only path to freedom, not just for others, but for ourselves, why not struggle for something that is, worth, that is worthwhile? Martin Luther King once said, power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and naive. But power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. Conforming to a stereotype about Southern men and their cars, let me just say that most of what I've ever learned, I learned on long car trips or from car bumper stickers. For example, when I think about the growing disparity of wealth between different communities in this nation and in the world, I often remember a bumper sticker that I saw when I was young that said, I came here 30 years ago with literally nothing, and I still have most all of it. One of my most memorable car trips from Durham, North Carolina, to Washington, D.C. happened in 1995 right after Bill Clinton had set up the CDFI Fund, the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund, which he had partly modeled on self-help. So he had invited me and a van load, a a group of self-help borrowers to (coughs) uh, to come to the signing ceremony in the White House Rose Garden. And I rented a white step van and drove from North Carolina to Washington and brought with me a group of borrowers. As we were driving, we left after work one day, and as we were driving, all of the other borrowers took a nap and were started to go to sleep. And there was this one person who was sitting in the front seat, in the passenger seat beside me. His name was Thomas J. Avery, TJA, his initials, an African-American father of five. Thomas, in this late-night conversation, told me how he had named each of his children to have the same initials that he did, TJA. And I was thinking, well, that's a little bit odd, but I was trying to be diplomatic, and I said, well, that's unusual and very neat. (laughs) And there was a pause, and then Thomas reached over and put his hand on my shoulder, and he made me turn around and look at him, even though I was driving, 
And he says, Martin, I didn't pick those names to be neat. I picked those names because we were poor. I wanted each child to have clothes that would be special with his or her initials on the sleeve. My only dream in life was to be the father in a large family and to take care of my children. I needed to be able to pass on the clothes as hand-me-downs from each child to the next and have the clothes still be special to that child. Thomas looked at me and he quietly said, you don't really know what my story in history with self-help is, do you? And I had to admit that I didn't. And he told me his dream was to be a father in a big family, that he had worked as a mechanic for a trucking company in Greensboro but then lost his job. For six months, his family had tried to lift off his wife's salary as a teacher's assistant. And finally, he had found a temporary job in Durham, which is an hour drive away from Greensboro. He would get up at 4 a.m. every morning to make school lunches for his children before driving to Durham. He told me that the strain of commuting with insufficient money to pay the rent had made him finally think the unthinkable, that he might have to abandon his family because he couldn't face them. And he winced in pain as he told me that he knew the stereotype about all black men that they would eventually abandon their children. He had found a small house to purchase in Durham where the family could be together and where the monthly payment was cheaper than the rent he was paying in Greensboro. But nobody would give him a loan. And he looked at me and he said, just before self-help approved my loan, I had decided that I would kill myself before I would abandon my children. The loan, his words, the loan from self-help didn't just save my family, it saved my life. So you tell me, you know, who had the privilege and who had the detriment in that transaction? I would argue that it was that I had the privilege. For years, we made small business loans and home ownership loans. And by 1998, the Ford Foundation gave self-help a $50 million grant. Now, where I come from, that's real money. In order to expand a home ownership program nationwide. And we were cited as one of the most effective nonprofit community development groups in the country. But we knew we were very tiny, barely making a difference. And I had this borrower who came into my office in 1998, the end of 1998. And one of our loan officers had said, Martin, I don't understand what's going on, but there's something strange with this customer, this potential customer's loan. And he came in and he told me about getting a loan from a finance company called The Associates, which had formerly been Ford Motor Credit but spun off, and that the company would not allow him to refinance his loan. He says, I've had this loan for a long time. It's killing me. I'm paying 14% interest rate on a mortgage loan, and they won't let me pay it off. And I looked at him. You know, I'm a lawyer, not a very good one, but I looked at him and said, I just, I really don't believe your story. So I said, bring in your paperwork and let me look at it. He came back the next day and brought in his paperwork, and I looked and saw that he had refinanced a loan that he had originally taken out. He had re originally refinanced in 1988, 10 years earlier. And I looked at the paperwork, and it had been a $29,000 loan that this finance company had charged him $15,000 of upfront fees in order to refinance. So when he walked out, he was not literate. He signed his name with an X. He had a $44,000 loan at 14% instead of $29,000 that he came in. I sat down and did a calculation that if he had had a self-help loan during those 10 years that he paid, 
he would have completely paid off the loan and built up $10,000 of savings with the payments that he had made. Instead, he was in my office with his loan in foreclosure and the balance still owed was $43,500. And so I was, you know, you can't tell it from now, but I used to have really long, curly red hair <laughs> and a really hot temper. And so I started to boil. I mean, I was really getting mad. And I said, well, let me call this company and we'll see what we can find out. And as I got ready to get on the telephone, he said, well, Martin, there's one more thing I need to do. And he had tears that welled up in his eyes, and he looked at me, this 55-year-old African-American father. He said, Martin, the real reason I can't lose this home is not because I helped build it with my own hands, which I did, but I have a nine-year-old daughter who lost her mother three years ago, and this house is the only connection my daughter will ever have with her mother. And so I'm, you know, I'm about to get on the phone, and I'm wired. I get the young, so my Texas friends, I apologize. It was a Dallas, Texas headquartered company. I get the young uh, customer service person on the phone, and after five minutes, she basically says, I will not tell you what the payoff balance is on this loan. After all, you're just a competitor trying to steal my customer. And I just snapped. And I told her, I said, you've picked the wrong fight with the wrong person at the wrong time. If it takes me the rest of my life, we're going to drive your damn company into the Atlantic Ocean, and you'll never make a loan in the state of North Carolina ever again. I get off the phone. I'm feeling very self-righteous. You know, I've told her. <laughs> and I do a little data research, and I find out this company is the largest finance company in the world with $100 billion of assets. It made 20,000 mortgage loans in the state of North Carolina in the preceding year, in 1998. And they're really a big, powerful company. And so I did then what I hadn't planned to do. I'm a lender. You know, I felt like I was pretty good at that by 1998. We convened a group of bankers and credit unions and civil rights groups and housing groups and realtors and home builders we ended up with a coalition that had 3 million of North Carolina's 5 million total voters at the time and passed in North Carolina almost unanimously the first anti-predatory lending law that would stop the practices that the associates had done. At one point, they had 25 lobbyists, one for every leadership member of the General Assembly of North Carolina. And the bill we passed was pretty moderate. It just said you can't charge more than 5% fees on the front end. Well, the norm for a mortgage loan is 1%. So I literally, after we got this bill compromised and passed, I went home nauseated because I felt like I had let down the very people that I was working for. But it was a step, and it did really constrain this company. And after that, after it passed in North Carolina, really with the banks and the credit unions who hate each other, they won't even talk to each other, but they all, for some reason, liked us. Now, they didn't like us, they just would listen to us. We passed this law that said no prepayment penalties on a mortgage. You can't be penalized to get out of a bad loan. You can't charge upfront fees more than 5%. You can't intentionally flip a loan and refinance it over and over simply to extract the equity from a person's home. And you can't have front-loaded insurance 
on a mortgage loan that is so costly that it drives families into foreclosure. And once we pass this, I'm thinking, okay, it's time to take this national because the problem is not just in North Carolina. And I approached the National Mortgage Bankers Association and the National ABA and said, at this point in time, we have the power to replicate this law throughout the United States. And it will be a single law uniform in all the different states. And the response I got from the Mortgage Bankers Association of, of America was, you're out of your mind. You caught us by surprise in North Carolina. You'll never catch us by surprise anywhere else. We will stop you in any other state, and we will roll back the legislation that you did in North Carolina uh, next year. So I looked at them and I said, well, I, I can tell you for a fact that you're wrong that it's not because I'm eloquent or that we're going to fight for it, which we will, but you cannot win a battle where hundreds and thousands of people are losing their homes because they were cheated out of their lifetime savings. You will not win that battle. Eventually, right will prevail, and we will stop you. Well, my arrogance at that time was, uh, was justified, but I heard this adage that said, anything worth fighting for takes at least 10 years to achieve. Well, I'm a very impatient person, and anyone who told me it's going to take 10 years to do this, I would have really been angry. But just this year, the financial reform bill that just passed, and the chief operating officer from self-help was hired to be the director of consumer protection in the U.S. Treasury, and the Center for Responsible Lending, that by now we had put $8 million a year into funding these 50 million financial terrorists, if you want to call them that, we got to the point where we were basically shaping the very principles that we sat down in a little conference room on the sixth floor of our building in Durham in 1998 and designed. Every one of those 10 principles were implemented into law in this financial reform bill 12 years later, which will basically clean up the mortgage industry in the United States. And this kind of, and you'll be glad to know, the associates no longer exists. They I didn't drive them into the Atlantic Ocean, but they did disappear. Let me close. Well, before I get to closing, uh, what I want to say is that I think I have the best job in America. It is true that I have had death threats from the Ku Klux Klan. I've had death threats from drug dealers who didn't want us cleaning up a neighborhood where they had preeminent power. And I've had the payday lenders who make 400% interest rate loans and the subprime mortgage lenders who had the abuses that I mentioned with the associates tell me that they considered me their number one enemy in the world. Well, I was raised in this religious family that thought that, that pride was one of the great mortal sins. But I've got to tell you, it really made me feel good that they would tell me and they said, they said, we're going to put up $10 million, not to defeat you, but to destroy you personally. And they hired the firms, the very national firms that did the John Kerry Swift boat smear. And these smear, it was really remarkable. They were hitting us on things that I thought we were immune from. You know, Self-help has a salary cap. And these guys were spreading around saying, yeah, they have, sal they have a salary cap, but Martin gets a salary from eight of the different corporations that are part of self-help. So his $71,000 uh, 
of salary is really $500,000. Totally false. Totally untrue. But it's been, I used to go to speeches. I gave a speech to homeless advocates in Columbus, Ohio. Came out of the speech and walked outside of the hotel. And driving around the hotel was a huge tractor-trailer truck with a billboard sign that they were hauling behind the truck saying self-help is a predatory charity. They're trying to put our 400% loans out of business. I'm like, oh, a predatory charity. But I tell people, what's so gratifying about this work is I've gotten to walk with 10,000 different families and get to know them one-on-one. -on -one. And about of the people that I have met in the last 30 years, I tell people jokingly that half of them love me. And they tell me, Martin, we would stand up and take a bullet for you. And then I say, unfortunately, the other half say, could we provide the bullet? <laughs> My final third preaching point is that I think that suffering and self-sacrifice are the essence of business leadership and is what can heal the corrosion that has taken hold of us in this country. Now, I know this sounds odd to you, that no one seeks suffering or self-sacrifice, but suffering has a way of finding us whether we seek it out or not. Self-sacrifice is different. It's something that we choose to do out of love. I have talked to mothers who face random and predatory violence in unsafe neighborhoods. These mothers tell me that every night they pray for their sons. And I asked them, I said, what, what is your prayer for your sons? And what they told me shocked me as a parent. They said, Martin, our prayer is that our sons will simply live long enough to go to prison. I'm like, that can't be what you, your, your hope for your children. And their response to me was, time is a cure for a prison term, but there is no cure for a bullet in our neighborhood. So we really live in these different worlds, one that has wealth and choices, and one with poverty and pessimism and pain that is so real that many of our neighborhoods have become literally killing fields. One of my best friends is this middle-class Six-foot-four African-American man, a big man, a national leader in the community development world. A few years ago, he got a call on a Monday morning telling him that he needed to come home. And the person calling him wouldn't tell him why he needed to come home. He lived in Henderson, about 40 minutes away from Raleigh. It turned out that his 20-year-old son, who happened to be the same age as my son, had been murdered that morning, presumably for $60. Well, there was nothing that I could do or that anyone could do for my friend other than being there with him during this time of grief. But being there with people in times of pain and suffering is really what creates the bonds that make us human. It's the glue that holds together civilization itself. Many years ago, I used to visit a family on the coast of North Carolina. Anyone here been to Newburn, North Carolina? This is where the Newburn Bakery was located who did our first $77. I would go down every weekend to teach bylaws for this newly chartered business by very poor people. And I would stay with the family that really was the entrepreneur. And the person there, his, he was this great guy, six foot four, had a long beard with streaks of gray. And he had told me, he said, you know, I was a cook on a Navy ship in World War II. And my whole life, my dream has been to start a small bakery. 
And so I would go down every weekend to help them with the bylaws and the business plan for their new bakery. And we had, a, had approached seven or eight different banks, all of whom had turned us down for financing. And it was the middle of a really cold winter that I was driving to the coast. And this was the first time that this family had ever had a white person stay in their home, ever. And when I would get there and it was freezing outside, they had one central heater, a kerosene heater in the middle of the house. And it was so hot in there. And I, you know, I wanted to say something, but I, was, I didn't want to be rude. And I thought to myself, well, maybe there's something just really odd about black people in heat. And after my third weekend of driving down in this really frigid winter, I finally asked them, I said, do you think we might turn the heat down just, just, just a little bit? And of course, you know this, you know the outcome, right? They looked at me and they said, well, thank God. We thought there was something really strange about white people in heat. About two weeks later, I talked to another friend of this family and I said, Martin, what you didn't realize was during that time that you were driving down, this family was unemployed trying to start this small business. They would go the entire week with no heat at all so that on the weekend they would have enough kerosene to heat the house while you were there. And so I ask you, what do you think I would not do for that family? with what they had done with their meager means to sacrifice for me. When people sacrifice for you, think about your mother or your father or your grandparent, whoever is the person who is the most significant person in your life, and you will find someone who self-sacrificed in order to advance you. St. Augustine once said, we should preach the gospel wherever we go and use words only when necessary. Use words only when necessary. Here was a man with moral authority who knew that being there meant much more than simply talking about a problem. So yes, we should love our enemies, but sometimes we have to resist them and stop them first. And if it takes sacrifice to lift the poor, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to, home, to house the homeless, or to comfort the afflicted, I say so be it. If it takes self-sacrifice for every person in this room to find one family in Durham who is losing their home to foreclosure and stand with them, whether you can stop it or not, but just to be there with them, I would say so be it. And if it takes self-sacrifice for us to stand with immigrants who every single day are threatened with physical and economic violence, then we should do it. There are in this room two or three people who will have the chance and the power in their lifetime to make major worldwide change. But you don't know which one of the three you are. You don't know yet. So each one of us must prepare to be the person who can respond when our call comes in an ordinary day. So let me propose that in this life of action, of being there, that you find a way to connect with real people and real families during their time of urgent need and suffering. And with that, let me say, welcome to Durham. I call on you to engage with the community during your years at Duke, and I promise you, you will not regret it.
thank you for letting me come and preach at you this morning. Would you like to take a few minutes questions? We'll about five minutes or so. Gang, we want to give you a few about five minutes for Q&A. We're running a little, little bit tight, but let's do five minutes of Q&A for Martin. So please raise your hands and Martin will call in. When I started self-help, I viewed it as an extension of the civil rights movement. I grew up in a black community. Every one of my friends were killed or destroyed. My best friends growing up were young boys playing basketball every afternoon. And I would tell people, if I had grown one more foot, I'd still be hanging around some NBA team trying to make it, uh, uh, make it there. When we started, we felt like the legal phase of the civil rights and women's movement had largely been won, but that the legal rights would make virtually no difference unless it was translated into economic opportunities. So our goal was to create jobs and ownership opportunities for people in the bottom half of the economic stratus. It wasn't until four or five years later that we even, if anyone had ever told me first that I was become a lawyer, I would have laughed at them, but then a banker, like, this is not my life's view. You know, I was a philosophy and physics major as an undergraduate. But we found we simply could not get lending capital for people of color and women and non-traditional entrepreneurs. In the mid-80s, we couldn't get the capital. And so not being smart enough to know what we couldn't do, we had this great vision. We said, we'll start our own damn bank. Of course, we didn't know what that meant, and we only had $77 of capital, so we started self-help credit union. And immediately within, really within the first month, we had a million dollars that had been deposited with us from church orders from all over the country who basically said, Martin, if you really are as much of a fool as you sound like, we'll at least get our money back because it's insured. <laughs> but in the meantime, you can use it to convert what would be ordinary savings into development credit for lending. And so we found that lending was it was a very powerful tool. Uh, when people need assistance, they don't think they need anything other than money. I mean, the truth is most small businesses that start lack the connections and the experience to really succeed at that level. It's not the money, per se. But most people believe all I need is the money. And so as a good community organizer, being a lender, let us start with those businesses and communities with what they identified as their needs. And so we, you know, I never had a, I, had a, I did have a 15-year plan, and not any page in it had us being a lender. And then we gradually became the largest nonprofit lender in the United States. So, you know, my message is, have a good plan, but be ADD enough to change it whenever you can. And there are some benefits in business to being ADD. I'm proof of that. Other questions?
Okay, thank you very much for having me here today, and have a great day in Durham for the rest of the day. Bye-bye. Produced by Duke University. Online at duke.edu.